Imagine yourself in the jungle. The vegetation is dense, the humid air is thick with the sounds of birds and insects and maybe the occasional whoop of a monkey. Maybe you're out hunting, or maybe you're just going for a walk to clear your mind. And then you realize you forgot to take the pot off the hearth. Or worse, you're surrounded by giant spiders. And you forgot your cell phone. And there's no cell service even if you had your cell phone. What are you going to do? Who could you call for help? This is literally becoming my worst nightmare. Anyway, never mind the spiders. The challenge in this environment is how to get news quickly from one place to the next without having to physically send a messenger through what could be treacherous and slow-going terrain. Enter the drum. This is just one scenario where the technology of musical surrogate languages could prove vital for a community to thrive. In this episode, I'll take you around the world in five traditions to see how people use speech surrogates in their daily lives to solve a variety of communication problems. We'll look at different instruments and modalities from South America, Africa, Asia, the Pacific, and even Europe. Hopefully, these snapshots will give you a better idea of what kind of systems are out there, who uses them, and why I'm so excited to be studying them. I'm Laura McPherson, and this is When Music Speaks. Okay, while I might have made up the part about the spiders, drums in the jungle are very real. In the Amazonian rainforest on the border of Colombia and Peru live the Bora, an indigenous community of about 1,500 people. At least traditionally, they live in small settlements built around round houses which provide shelter for multiple families. Communicating from one settlement to another or from the round house out to people in the surrounding forest is a formidable challenge. Even under the best of circumstances, the human voice can only travel a few hundred meters, and the rainforest is hardly the best of circumstances when it comes to sound. The Bora have developed an ingenious technology to tackle this problem, one that needs no electricity or cell phone towers. Slit log drums. Known locally as manguare, they are made up of a pair of hollowed-out logs, each about two meters long. Each log has a slit carved down the length of it, and each side of the slit produces a different pitch when struck. This means that with two drums and two pitches each, the pair of drums can make four different notes, but when used for speaking and sending messages, only one side of each drum is used. These drums used to be in daily use in Bora communities, though nowadays only about 20 drums remain and they're falling into disuse. A few years ago, a team of researchers led by Frank Seifart and Julien Meyer set out to understand this system of drum speech, what kinds of messages it sends, and how listeners are able to decode it. In their 2018 paper in the Royal Society Open Science, they note that Mangware messages serve as informal public announcements, everything from announcing the return of the chief to the roundhouse to announcing the results of non-alcoholic drinking contests. The basic idea behind Bora drummed speech, and many if not most musical surrogate languages in general, is that the pitches and rhythm of the drum mimic the sounds of the words. When it comes to pitch, bora, like Senku from the last episode, is a tone language. Every syllable is pronounced with either a high tone or a low tone, and these tones translate to the pitches on the drum. 
Speech rhythm is also replicated very precisely by the drum beats, with each strike of the drum roughly corresponding to a vowel in the language. Sound hard to decode? Well, let's do a little experiment, adapting the Bora drumming strategy to English. Of course, English isn't a tone language, but we do use pitch in our intonational melodies, so I took cues from there. I chose two random sentences, each eight syllables long and both having to do with pasta. I think I'd just seen the New York Times cooking newsletter in my email when I came up with this, so pasta was on my mind. The two sentences are, what did you put on the pasta? And what pasta did your friend order? I'll play you one of the two drum renditions now, and you need to decide which one it is. Have your guess? Here's the other. I ran this experiment on a few family and friends before recording this episode, and most people got it right. Let's see how you did. What did you put on the pasta? What pasta did your friend order? Now, of course, you knew that the messages could be only one of two sentences. What if I played you something like the following and then asked you what I was saying? A lot harder, right? For the record, it was, this sound booth is rather stuffy. So this is the same challenge that faces the Bora community. Sure, the language is tonal, so words have a set pitch pattern, unlike intonational melodies in English, but with only tone and rhythm, that leaves a lot of room for ambiguity. This is a challenge facing most speech surrogates, and strategies to combat the ambiguity differ. For the Bora, Zeifart Meyer and their colleagues show that messages on the Mangware drums have a pretty rigid structure that allows listeners to identify what kind of information to expect when. A message always begins with one of two phrase options that identify its quote-unquote type. This can be either come now or bring now. Everything the Bora want to say on the drum will be prefaced with one of those two patterns. Next in sequence comes the addressee, who the message is meant for. In Bora society, people belong to clans, named for elements in the natural world like sun or anaconda. This clan name is drummed first, followed by whether the person is male or female, and then their personal name. The message content then follows, and obviously this is where the most choices of what to say are found, and hence where things could get the most ambiguous. However, there are special grammatical markers the drum uses to distinguish nouns and verbs, and a puzzling use of terms for dead, deceased, or damaged things, even when the message doesn't try to convey that meaning. For instance, if the mangware were calling people to come eat deer, the drum would call out, in order that we eat the deceased deer of the damaged animal clan. Here, if you're eating the deer, you'd hope it were deceased, but these terms are found even for things like salt, and the Bora evidently don't have any intuitions as to why they drum things this way. Whoever invented the system is long, well, deceased. At the very end, a fixed end phrase is played that translates to, Now don't say that I'm a liar. And that's that. Message sent. This same kind of long-distance communication using slit-log drums can also be found in parts of Africa, as well as in Melanesia, though there the rhythms tend to be arbitrary signals rather than emulating speech. But other kinds of drums are also used for different kinds of communication. Perhaps the most famous drum communication system is the Yoruba talking drum, the dundun. These are hourglass-shaped drums with a skin membrane on each side attached to each other with cords. The musician holds the drum under their arm, and by squeezing the cords, they can change the tension of the membranes and, as a result, the pitch of the drum. 
To get a sense of what the drum sounds like, here's a clip from a study by Cecilia Durojaye and colleagues. We'll hear more about some of their findings shortly. Unlike the bora drums, the dundun is not meant to send signals long distances, which makes sense since while it is loud, it isn't as loud as giant hollowed-out logs. Instead, it's played in a variety of festival settings, both secular and sacred. In its musical mode, it lays down dance rhythms, and in its speaking mode, its messages are intended for members of the audience. The basic idea of how the drum can speak is the same as the bora. Each strike of the drum represents a syllable in Yoruba, and the pitch of the drum mimics the language's three tone levels, low, mid, and high. But the dundun is an excellent imitator and can go beyond simply hitting these three pitches. The tension chords mean that pitch is fluid and malleable, just like the pitches we can produce with our vocal folds, so the drum can capture all the little nuances of tone and inflection. If you're interested in reading more about it, check out Samuel Akinbo's work, especially his 2021 paper, The Language of Gangang, a Yoruba Talking Drum, published in Frontiers in Communication. In terms of rhythm, Dr. Durojaye and her colleagues, whose clip we heard above, have found that the speaking mode of the dundun closely mimics Yoruba speech rhythm, which is, unsurprisingly, quite different from the regular beat found in musical or dance mode. It is, after all, pretty hard to tap your foot along to the beat of someone speaking. So what is the Yoruba talking drum saying to the audience? The bulk of the messages fall into one of two categories, oriki, praise poetry, and owe, proverbs. A Yoruba master drummer has to have a good command of social dynamics and family history in order to be able to choose appropriate praise poetry for a festival attendant, their entourage, and their ancestors. He can lift them up, bring down their rivals, or even spread gossip to achieve social goals and his own financial ones, as these big men and women pay him well for his services. Owe, or proverbs, are also an important part of Yoruba oral literature and everyday speech, and they are likewise peppered throughout performances. The master drummer has to choose appropriate proverbs for the occasion, and cultured Yoruba listeners will understand not only the literal words of the proverb, but also its intended meaning. Amanda Villapastor gives the following example of a Yoruba proverb in her book Ancient Text Messages of the Yoruba Bata Drum. The cricket dares not make a sound in the vicinity of the viper. In other words, insignificant people should not dare the powerful. The Yoruba talking drums do not use a strict formula the way the Bora do. There's no need for it. Everyone listening to the messages is present and can read the social context, plus the hypothesis space is restricted by the fact that phrases are most likely to be either praises or proverbs. It won't be just any announcement. This just goes to show that how languages get turned into music depends on a number of factors. What sounds does the instrument produce? What is it being used to say? Who's listening and are they meant to understand it? After the break, we'll look further into that last question as we turn away from drums and look to wind instruments that speak not to living people, but to the dead.
far, we've seen two kinds of drums on two continents, each of which are meant to be heard and understood by people in the community. But this is not always the case. In the mountains of Southeast Asia, we can hear echoes of a very different type of instrument whose messages reach a very different audience. The Hmong people originated in southern China, but in the 19th century, they fled Chinese persecution and settled in the remote hills of Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. The aftermath of the Vietnam War in the 70s saw yet another mass migration around the globe, such that now large Hmong communities can be found in the U.S., Australia, Argentina, and other countries. Like the two other languages we have seen thus far, Hmong is a tonal language and thus lends itself nicely to musical surrogate languages. Several instruments are used in Hmong culture, including flutes, jaw harps, or fiddles, but here we focus on the qing, spelled Q-E-E-J, in the Hmong spelling system. This is a free-read wind instrument with multiple pipes, sometimes called a mouth organ, and it plays a very important role in Hmong society. Its messages send off the souls of the deceased. In the following clip, we hear from qing player and teacher Chai Li in an interview with Twin Cities PBS. play the thing, essentially you're kind of just talking to the deceased uh, spirit. You're giving um, directions, take a left here, follow the chicken here. The thing was created to kind of uh, keep the dead dead. So as Lee says, the sounds of the thing keep the dead dead. If the words are not played correctly, the soul may not go on to the afterlife and may linger, bringing misfortune to the living family. Becoming a master qing player is no easy feat. The funeral liturgy is long and filled with archaic words that have been passed down orally from generation to generation. Hmong has seven tones, and the tones of each word are translated onto the notes of the qing. But these mappings result in ambiguity since the instrument produces just four musical pitches, in addition to three drone tones. Ethnomusicologist Catherine Falk of the University of Melbourne describes how the relationship between spoken word and musical message is further obscured by musical flourishes known as ndi, and the use of upper and lower drones means that only a trained listener will know which pitch is representing a spoken tone. The messages are concealed with good reason. These are powerful, dangerous messages, meant not for the living but for the dead. In one funeral song documented by Dr. Falk, the Qing says, If you are truly dead, you must turn to face me. Now I can recite the song of death for you to listen to so that it will help you find your way to your grandparents' world. It's no wonder that with such powerful messages, the Hmong have chosen to send them not with regular spoken words, but with musical sounds that transcend human language. While the Qing can be used in secular contexts as well, the funeral repertoire is its most important function. Without the Qing and its musical surrogate messages, the proper balance of life and death cannot be maintained. Just as speech surrogates are used in rites and rituals surrounding death, they can also be used in creating life through courtship rituals. Messages to your beloved are intimate. They're not meant to be broadcast across the valleys by loud slit-log drums, unless really public declarations of love are your thing. And so it's no surprise that the instruments used in this kind of communication are softer and more intimate as well. These kinds of speech surrogates are found all over the world, including in Hmong culture. But we'll continue our tour here in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, the most linguistically diverse country on the planet with over 800 languages spoken. Out of these 800, we'll look at two neighboring languages, Huli and Wiru. 
The Huli are one of the better-known cultures in PNG, famous for their men's elaborate wigs made out of human hair. Hence, they are sometimes called the Huli Wigmen. You really should look them up online. The wigs are incredible. As Jacqueline Pugh-Kittingan writes, the culture tends to be highly individualistic, and a person's wealth and community stature are based on their skills and achievements rather than an inherited social position. Perhaps because of this, huli music tends to be played solo. Two instruments are used in songs of courtship, though in slightly different settings, the jaw harp and the mouth bow. The jaw harp, also known as the Jew's harp and as the hiriyula in huli, is played in the presence of one's lawini, their sweetheart. It is a small instrument made from bamboo, with a thin tongue or lamella between two arms and a twine cord attached to the end that the lamella protrudes from. The instrument is held between the lips, and the lamella is made to vibrate by jerking the taut cord with a thumb. These vibrations resonate in the oral cavity, the mouth. The player, who could be a man or a woman, changes the shape of the oral cavity by articulating words, which amplifies or dampens certain harmonics of the instrument. In many ways, this is just like normal speech, only in the case of the jaw harp, the pitch produced by the vibrations of the lamella take the place of the vibrations of the vocal folds, or the larynx. Thus, the love song is obscured or masked, increasing its intimacy. That was a sample recorded in 1975 by Dr. Pugh Kittingan, published on her 1986 album The Huli of Papua New Guinea, part of the Baron Ryder Musicophone Music of Oceania series. The words of this first verse contain a lot of names, names of the instrument and both personal and clan names of young men in the performer's family. Later in the song, the performer's poetry expresses the yearning those young men would articulate for their beloved when playing their own hiriyula. A similar instrument used in courtship is the mouth bow, though in huli culture this is typically played in the absence of the beloved. As the name indicates, the instrument has the shape of a bow, as in bow and arrow, with an arc of wood and two strings with different pitches wrapped around its ends. The corner of the bow is held in the mouth, and so, like the jaw harp, the oral cavity is used as a resonator, and words are articulated in the same way. Dr. Pugh Kittingan describes a fascinating system of speech surrogacy, where the pitches of the strings emulate Huli's tone patterns, while the consonants and vowels are articulated with the mouth, once again amplifying and dampening the strings' harmonics. Pretty complicated. It's my hope to be able to do fieldwork on these systems myself to better understand them, especially how tone factors into the hiriyula with its single bass pitch. Just recently, I learned that a neighboring culture, the Wiru, also used the mouthboat to articulate poetry, though it is only played by men and for a wide range of poetry. This is especially exciting to me, as for the past year, I've been collaborating with a team of linguists from the University of Oregon, Hawaii, and Florida to figure out Wiru's tone system. As I've written about in the past, musical surrogate languages can be an awesome tool in analyzing tone, especially when all those subtle little pitch changes in speech are turned into discrete notes. I don't know yet what this clip is saying, gotta save that for a future field trip, but here's a short recording of the Wiru mouthbow, the Wapiella, recorded in the 1980s by Don Niles and Andrew Strathern. (laughs) 
You can hear one man playing and another man listening and identifying the phrases as he hears them. My widow isn't very good yet, but I'm pretty sure I hear Ottawa woman in there here and there. Hopefully, I'll have more to report on these amazing orally articulated Papuan instruments in the next couple of years. We'll end this tour a little closer to home with a little bonus, a whistled speech surrogate. Now, whistled speech is not really what this podcast will be about, but it is related to musical surrogate languages, especially those last ones from PNG where the oral cavity is used to shape the sounds. We've covered a lot of languages that are likely to be unfamiliar, so let's wrap the podcast up with one you might know a little bit more about. Spanish. That's right, you can whistle Spanish, and that's exactly what people have been or had been doing for generations on the island of La Gomera in the Canary Islands. This whistling is known as Silbo Gomero, or Gomeran whistling, and it brings us full circle back to those Bora drums in the Amazon since its purpose is long-distance communication. The terrain on La Gomera is hilly, and if a shepherd across the valley needed to be called home for any reason, the human voice, even shouting, just wouldn't carry. Whistles, on the other hand, are very loud and very crisp acoustically. They can carry with them messages from hilltop to hilltop. Here's an example of whistled conversation recorded by world expert on whistled speech, Dr. Julien Meyer. Here, one speaker, or whistler, asks the other to open up his bag and take something out. The first phrase asks, You want me to open up my backpack and take what out? To which the second whistler responds, Whatever you'd like. The first replies, Bueno, bueno. Okay, okay. So, how does it work? Spanish isn't tonal, after all. Whistled speech is like the mouth bow or jaw harp in that the mouth continues to articulate words, pretty much as you would when speaking, but you're not using your vocal folds. Here, though, rather than having the sound source produced by an external instrument, like the vibration of a string or a lamella, the sound is produced by the breath, the whistle. As you move your tongue and jaw into their positions for different consonants and vowels, this changes the pitch of the whistle. Vowels like e and u produce higher pitches since the tongue is closer to the roof of the mouth than vowels like o or a. The tongue's movements to articulate consonants between those vowels produce micro-fluctuations in the pitch that a skilled whistler can interpret. Abre Tu mochila Isaca Cualquier cosita This kind of whistled speech isn't specific to the Canary Islands. A similar system is also found for Spanish in Tlaxcala, Mexico, and for other languages like Turkish or Greek. You could even whistle English using the same principles. When a language is tonal, however, people tend to whistle the tones instead of the consonants and vowels, even though the consonants and vowels in the language probably carry more information. It seems like when you're used to paying attention to pitch, you use something like whistling to reproduce those pitches. If pitch isn't meaningful, as in Spanish or Turkish, then you can co-opt those pitches to represent another kind of linguistic contrast. Pretty cool stuff, at least to a linguist. So, there we have it. We've been around the world in five traditions. 
I hope this little tour has given you a better sense of the myriad ways in which human cultures have adapted language to music and how those systems are influenced by aspects of the language, the mode of communication, and the intended purpose. And we've just scratched the surface here. There is so much more out there to tell you about and even more out there that hasn't been studied yet. In an upcoming episode, I'll tell you a bit about what the process of discovery looks like with a field report on my time spent in Benin this summer, the reason why this episode was so delayed. This trip had it all. Pythons, fried cheese, voodoo divinities, and of course, talking drums. Join me next time on When Music Speaks. Financial support for When Music Speaks comes from the National Science Foundation. Our theme music is Sayate Fali by Mamadou Jabate and Percussion Mania. Many thanks to the scholars who shared their recordings with us for this episode, including Frank Zeifart, Julien Meyer, Aaron Carter Enyi, Don Niles, and Jackie Pugh-Kittingham. And also to the director of the World Music Archives at Wesleyan University, Aaron Biddle, for digitizing the Huli recordings. Subscribe to stay up to date or share this podcast with a friend. To learn more about musical surrogate languages, visit our website at speechsurrogates.org. I'm Laura McPherson, and I'll see you next time on When Music Speaks.